Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And Hannah, I have a question for you. Go right ahead. Okay. A few listeners have asked very, very reasonably what exactly we mean when we say that we are doing a materialist critique of something. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Could you just explain that in a nutshell, please? So materialist critique at its simplest possible level. It's a form of cultural critique. So that's kind of like scholarly engagement with a cultural text of some kind. Mm -hmm. Critique is not like saying it's bad. It's just like thinking about it. Yeah. And talking about it. Yeah. And writing about it. Yeah. You know, that stuff. So it's a form of cultural critique that is specifically interested in things like modes of production. So like how the thing was made. Contexts of reception. So like what people made of the thing that was made. Mm -hmm. And the larger historical and ideological contexts for stuff like production and reception. So you you would distinguish it as a scholar from formalist critique, mm. which is like really interested in close textual analysis of the thing itself, regardless of its particular moment of context. Mm, yes. But materialist critique is really interested in the question of why a particular cultural work or practice emerged at a particular moment. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. So like a materialist critic might look at a pop culture sort of phenomenon and ask, for example, Why this? Why now? Yeah. Yeah. That's a real classic materialist (laughs) question. And what a fun coincidence. That's also the name of our first segment where we introduce our object of study and start to think about what historical and ideological conditions underpin its popularity. Doesn't that sound like fun? That does sound like fun. And also 10 out of 10 on that segue. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. So uh, would you like to introduce us to our object of study? Yeah, I really, really, really would. Okay, Hannah, time to answer the question, why this? Why now? Starting. I assume with uh, the this, the this that we're going to talk about. What's the this? So in our pilot episode, you introduced us to the concept of masculinities, plural, as in there can be multiple masculinities rather than a single masculinity. And then you framed contemporary tender masculinity as in part a response to the Me Too movement before arguing that the widespread desire for an acceptance of tender masculinity finally created a media landscape where we could see Prince Harry as a person. Mm, that's so true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was like your thesis. Like a thesis. Mm-hmm. And then you came along and complicated the whole thing by asking in the classic materialist critique move, who's getting rich off this new articulation of non-toxic masculinity? I sure did. It's an important question. And I want to keep asking questions about contemporary masculinities and their commodification via pop culture, which is why today I want us to look at a key example of the commodification of tender masculinity. Say that 10 times fast. No. (laughs) So we are going to be talking about Queer Eye. (gasps) 
Oh, they're so nice. They're so tender. They're so, so tender. tender. So, Marcel, Mm -hmm. tell me about your relationship to the Netflix series Queer Eye. So, I was a late adopter of Queer Eye. I never watched the original series, but I, I knew of it. And so when it was relaunched, I didn't really care, I guess. Yeah. And it was... A f- friend, you know who it was? It was it was friend of the podcast, Sylvie Vigneau, who Aww. specifically was like, I hear what you're saying, but they're just so kind. They're, they're such, so lovely. such lovely people. And I was like, why would I want to watch a show about five lovely masculine people? <laughs> and then I did, and I was hooked immediately, obviously. Because it's a show that really gives you a lot of opportunities to have a good cry. Oh, yeah. It's very, (laughs) it's a real successful tearjerker. Yeah. If you just are like, I need to cry. I need Mm -hmm. a cathartic weep. Yeah. There's some real go-to episodes in there. And one of the things that I think is really sort of fascinating about this show as a series and like the different ways that people who like it respond to it is that different episodes will make different people cry for different reasons. And, (laughs) and like, (laughs) that's just a fact as a show. It's almost as though the premise is okay. Which tender wound are we going to prod with this episode? (laughs) And so as a viewer, you're like, Oh, I feel nothing about like complicated relationships with step parents. But then in another episode, you're like, but I feel so much about lonely men. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's hard to predict which ones will hit you. And some of the real some of the real fan favorites are ones that I'm like, really? That one? Really? That's your favorite? But like tender wounds. (laughs) It can sometimes feel, I think. Like, from a distance, it's like, oh, that's kind of manipulative. Like, this is a show that is, like, really tugging on your heartstrings. But it doesn't feel like it when you're watching it. That's right. And I think that might have been part of why I was kind of reluctant to start watching it. Because I feel like the premise of it sounds like hyper-manipulative reality TV. So, like, Mm -hmm. this show is designed to, like, prod your tender wounds and then make you feel better about the world at the at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when when people talk about the success of this reboot, they really emphasize the uh the chemistry between the new Fab 5. Mhm. Marcel, can you name all five of them? Yes. JVN, Jonathan Van Ness. Yeah. Karama Brown. Mhm. Anthony. Yeah, doesn't need a last name, just as Anthony. Did you know he's Canadian? I did know that. Yeah, it's one of my greatest shames. <laughs> okay, okay. Bobby and Tan. Tan, a.k.a. Tanny. <laughs> Tan France. Okay, so it is a reboot, as we mentioned. It was rebooted in 2018 from the original 2003 to 2007 run. The original show was originally called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, but they they shortened they actually shortened the original one to Queer Eye after a couple of seasons, and mm. the reboot was only ever called Queer Eye. And 
The premise of the original was really like, it's in New York and it's about like a bunch of cool, fashionable gay men helping straight men to be more fashionable. You, you might associate it with kind of that historical moment when we all started using the word metrosexual. Oh, my God. <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> do you I remember do. that? I do. I do. And I was thinking about that term recently because I saw a meme on Instagram or something that was like, y'all, the early aughts were brutal. <laughs> A man showered and we called him a metrosexual. Truly. And that's the premise of the original show so much is like, have you considered a shower? And there were some, I think, quite valid critiques of that original run, like particularly from from queer critics who were like, okay, this is like pretty dehumanizing of the gay men Mm -hmm. involved who are falling into this like quite stereotyped role of like servants for straight people Mm -hmm. and who's like we never get any sense of that original run and in that original run they give you very little sense of like the lives Mm. of these gay men outside of their like providing this service for straight men Mm -hmm. so the reboot sort of i think in somewhat interesting ways takes on those critiques and It has also had, I think, a more significant cultural impact. Mm -hmm. It certainly won a bunch more awards. The Fab Five have become, I think, more significant and mainstream celebrities Mm -hmm. than the original Fab Five were. And it's been renewed for more seasons. And it's made some other really interesting structural changes to the original premise, including the cast is much more diverse. And... Sisser? The original cast was definitely Cisser. You know, yeah. JVN is a uh, out non-binary person, and there's definitely no conversations about, you know, non-binary and gender-fluid people in mm-hmm. the original run. They also don't stay in New York. <gasps> what? Yeah. So, like, the first season, they're in rural Georgia. So there's, like, a really interesting shift of, like, what part of American culture they are intervening into. Okay, Georgia was one of the, like, hotly contested states that went Democrat when when Trump lost the 2020 election. Yeah. So did the influence of the Fab Five have that kind of cultural impact, Hannah? I don't know if we can make that claim, but I think the recognition that seriously engaging the South is a really vital part of current liberal American politics is Mm. part of the show's shifted focus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And then the other sort of really significant thing is that there is way more emphasis on the personal lives of the Fab Five, Mm -hmm. that they actually use their personal experiences as a way to like connect with the quote unquote heroes, which is what they call the people they're making over in the episode. So Marcel, Here's our question, our why this, why now question. What was happening in 2018 that made this reboot hit so well and has made it continue to be so successful? So, hey, Marcel, remind me what we were saying about 2018. Okay, so in our last slash first episode, I argued that 2018 was the year that we saw this surge of tender masculinity and other soft expressions of masculinity in mainstream media, and that it was at the same time that the hashtag MeToo movement had really reached a boiling point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, I think, 
is a piece of the cultural context that we absolutely have to bring forward into this conversation. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of other pieces that Mm. I want us to keep in mind. One is that between 2007 and 2018, right, between the end of the original run and the reboot, there was quite significant progress in terms of gay rights in and beyond the U.S. So in 2011, Obama repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the American military. Quick reminder of what that means. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a policy that essentially said it was illegal to be gay and in the military, but they wouldn't check. Yeah, as long as you don't, you know, brag about it. (laughs) They couldn't ask you if you were gay, but if you told somebody, like if you came out in the military, you were not allowed to be in the military anymore. So that was repealed in 2011. God, wild. wild. (laughs) The UK legalized gay marriage in 2014. And 2015 is the year that the Gallup polls in the US found that support for same-sex marriage had finally tipped over 50%. It hit 60% support in 2015. So we do have like a significantly different world of gay rights and a significantly different understanding of gay people as people who like are married and in relationships who are maybe raising kids. You know, that's a big part of the the context that the Fab Five are are now people who have lives outside of the show. But like lives that are like legible to straight viewers. Correct. Okay. Another really significant piece of the context of the reboot is the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. So Trump is elected in 2016, and it's a moment of sort of really public uh, shock for a lot of particularly white liberals mm-hmm. who, whether or not they were actually shocked, certainly are expressing a huge amount of shock, especially in like mainstream sort of centrist to left-leaning media. Mm-hmm. And particularly that performance of shock is then accompanied by the sense of, oh, there are much deeper divisions in American culture than we realized. Like, how can we have been so shocked in the first place? It must be because we truly do not know how many people have, like, really homophobic, white supremacist political opinions And that we start to get a lot of sort of mainstream discourse around the idea of reaching across the aisle or needing to just like sit down and have a conversation with a Trump voter. Mm. Do you remember that moment? Like everybody was like, we need to stop dehumanizing each other. We need to stop like furthering this political polarization. And the way that we're going to do that is just like sit down and try to understand why somebody might have voted for Trump. I don't like it. Nor do I. But do you remember it? <laughs> I do. I do. I do. Yeah. It was a. It was an uncomfortable time. It was a real discourse of the moment. And that sense of like, we need to seek to understand one another as people has, I think, one of its most iconic representations in the episode of Queer Eye where Karamo Brown has to like sit down and have a real frank conversation with a white Trump supporting cop mm-hmm. where like. Karamo is like, yeah, you know, my sons are afraid to learn how to drive because they are afraid they will be murdered by police officers. Yeah. And then the white cop is like, well, it makes me sad that people assume I'm racist because I voted for Trump. And then that's supposed to be a like, wow, we really are understanding each other better by having a conversation. You can tell from my tone that I don't buy this particular no. aspect of it. But 
it's a real moment. Mm -hmm. And the show really participates in this sort of idea that, like, social transformation isn't about, like, the transformation of structures, but, like, Mm. individual interactions. Like, we can really change things by just, like, sitting down and talking to each other and understanding each other better. It is kind of like the uh, television equivalent of door knocking. It's like why politicians go door to door. You know, and there is, there's some evidence that suggests that it is actually sometimes an effective way to change people's political Mm -hmm. stances is to be like, well, you are treating this idea like a totally sort of theoretical voting topic. But if you actually knew somebody who was impacted by this legislation, you might think differently. Yes, yes, for sure. So the third sort of context that I want us to keep in mind as we're looking at Queer Eye Mm -hmm. is neoliberalism. Okay. Hannah, neoliberalism is one of those terms that I hear all the time, and I bless my own soul. I use it, and I, honest to goodness, don't actually know what it means. Neoliberalism, aka neoliberal capitalism, is a particular manifestation of capitalist thinking that is a characteristic of late capitalism. So it was not a characteristic of, like, early industrial capitalism. Right. Okay. It's a characteristic of late, a.k.a., like, sort of starts to bubble up post-World War II and, like, really takes a hold at the end of the 20th and into the beginning of the 21st century. And it's basically the expansion of the logic of capitalism to every aspect of our lives. (laughs) So rather than capitalism being exclusively an economic concept, Mm -hmm. capitalism becomes the structuring logic of how we think about every relationship and every institution. So that logics of productivity, cost-benefit, efficiency, optimization become deeply incorporated into every aspect of everything that we do. And because that logic expands into every institution, every industry, we get both a sort of like widespread deregulation happening across lots of industries. So a sense that like the market should get to run everything. Governments should not have any say. There's no value in governments, say, managing like public services, right? Like we don't need we don't need the government to be managing our electricity grid. Deregulate it, privatize it. You know, universities, we experience this all the time, right? The university stops being sort of a public good and and begins to be treated as a business that is expected to be making a profit in order to justify its existence. That's right. The privatization of prisons, the privatization of hospitals, the right? Mm-hmm. All of these industries get privatized. And that logic begins to sink into, you know, how we think about our day-to-day lives and how we think about our own value as human beings. So we've talked in Witch Please about like ideology and discourse and how discourse like it functions to circulate ideological lessons, basically, right? Yes. So so is this why we might say something like if you are feeling really unwell for a few days? And you like stay home, you're in bed, you like watch a lot of TV or whatever. And you say like, oh, I haven't been productive at all. That's neoliberalism. Yes, absolutely. Like a function of neoliberalism is that it turns all of our time into potential units of productivity. Oh, my God. 
And so you are constantly thinking, am I using my time productively? So we get this like this constant optimization, the sense that like I want to do like a one hour high intensity workout that will optimize my possible fitness. Gia Tolentino has this great essay about the culture of optimization where she talks about the rise of chopped salads as like the ultimate optimized food. Because <laughs> you can like eat it over your desk. You don't have to worry. You don't have to look at it while you eat it because it's already, already in bite-sized pieces. And one of the interesting characteristics of neoliberalism is its embrace of a particular kind of self-care discourse mm-hmm. that is about buying your way into happiness, mm-hmm. one, and two, about reframing self-care as another form of optimization. Of course. That you take time off so you can be more productive when you get back. Yes. You take time off, you know, you treat yourself because it will make you a better worker in the long run. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have some examples of like self-care tools or self-care activities that might like kind of relate to Queer Eye as our object of study? Marcel, I've got so many and I actually (laughs) think that's a perfect segue into getting some of the theory that we need to understand this better. Oh, yes. I love it. I love it. Let's do that. Let's do it right now. I originally thought that I was going to use this episode to dive even deeper into masculinities. Mm -hmm. And you will notice in this segment that I end up taking what was, to me, a surprise pivot. But I started with what I think is a very smart article by Naveen Minai called All Things Keep Getting Better, Queer Eye, and the Makeover of American Masculinity. Ah, that's the song in the intro. All things keep getting better. Yeah, yeah. Optimization, the song. Things keep getting better. Things keep getting better. (laughs) And in it, Manai, I don't know if this is how you pronounce their name. So if anybody listening does know, let me know. So in it, Manai offers us some useful definitions and reminders that really resonate with how we've already talked about masculinities. So I am, Marcel, going to ask you just to read a couple of excerpts. Oh, goody. Okay. All right. First, let's start with the uh, definition of hegemonic masculinity. Quote, hegemonic masculinity in the United States is defined through heteropatriarchy and whiteness as settler colonial and inherently anti-Black technologies of power. Compulsory heterosexuality and whiteness are co-constitutive of each other and intersect to produce hegemonic masculinity in the United States. This is the default definition and standard for personhood and citizenship in the United States, end quote. Mm-hmm. So we've got a definition of hegemonic masculinity as based in compulsory heterosexuality, patriarchal power, and white supremacy as settler colonialism and anti-Blackness. Mm-hmm. Checks out. Minai then goes on to argue that the emotional and physical intimacies displayed by the Fab Five in the Queer Eye reboot offer a point of disruption into hegemonic masculinity. So I'm going to ask you to read one more quote. Great. I will do that. <clears throat> Quote, the Fab Five are friends, yet their friendships do not adhere to the rules and forms of friendships between men in American popular visual culture. 
their relationships are not mediated by professional or personal crisis, paternal and or fraternal frames, or heterosexual romance. Their relationships do not center pain, competition, hierarchy, anger, pride, guilt, or shame. Instead, the Fab Five offer us masculinities reworked and queered to center tenderness, playfulness, care, and joy. End quote. Amazing. Thank you. So what do you think of Manai's framing of Queer Eye thus far? I think it is an idealized interpretation of the show because I don't think it's quite right to claim that their relationships aren't mediated by professional or personal crisis, right? Like their relationships are literally professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're coworkers. They are they are coworkers. Famously, there were these multi-day like chemistry tests for the casting process where mm-hmm. they just like kept shuffling the groups until they found a group that had really good chemistry. So like literally their friendship was was engineered by a casting process. Like I know that Manaya is saying professional crisis or personal crisis, but like as you're saying Hannah, they are an engineered professional group and like maybe, you know, in another universe where they all just happen to be like in a coffee shop together and a song that they all like comes on and they become friends that way. Maybe maybe they would have been friends anyway. Who knows? I don't know. I can't predict the future or the alternate history. That's not the future. That's the, that's the another multiverse. That is the future that liberals want. Okay. All right. But they are professionals who are also literally crisis managing. They're a crisis management team. <laughs> yeah. That's what they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like they might not be in crisis with one another, but they are professionals and they are constantly mediating crisis. Yeah. And, you know, it's a friendship that is mediated through the logics of the market. Like they're mm-hmm. there to make a TV show that makes money. Yeah. Yeah. This is where I got kind of caught up in trying to read this show simply as a a celebration of of tender masculinity. Because, yes, there are real intimacies being worked through on the show between the Fab Five and between them and the heroes. But also those intimacies are constantly being mediated through this neoliberal logic that actually arguably opposes Mm. the thriving of the very communities that we are encountering. (gasps) Are we going to talk about Lauren Berlant? Oh, we're going to talk about Lauren Berlant. Oh, so exciting. Listen, okay. Marcel and I, huge Lauren Berlant fans. Stans, if you will. If you are not a stan, let me just give you a couple of just (laughs) high-level... Brilliant fun facts before we get into some like key concepts that I think are going to be useful for us here. So Berlant taught at the University of Chicago for their whole career from 1984 to 2021. They died in 2021 at the age of 63, uh, which fucking sucks. They died of cancer and right up to their death, they were still doing astonishing work. And I feel personally shortchanged. Yeah. Yeah. By the by the early death of Lauren Berlant. Mm. They were a scholar primarily of American popular culture. Mm-hmm. Their New York Times obituary called them the critic of the American dream. And, you know, they have this amazing, expansive, complex body of scholarship. But I want us to focus in on two key ideas. Okay. All right. So idea one, intimate publics. Mm-hmm. So the concept they came up with in their 2008 book, the female complaint. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Marcel, will you please remind us what a discourse public is? Well, we actually have an episode of Which Please, where we talk about discourse publics, but for the uninitiated. Or people with memory holes as deep as ours. <laughs> Especially mine. Michael Warner is an American theorist who talked about discourse publics as a group of strangers who understand themselves to be part of a public, not, this is different from the public, okay? The public is this sort of like amorphous, like everybody outside. <laughs> a public is a community of people who are unconnected to one another. They are strangers, but they are brought together where they are connected by virtue of being addressed by something. And for Warner, this is usually a text. So for example, it might be fans of Queer Eye, right? So like, I don't know anybody who lives in Georgia, but if there's a Queer Eye convention and we all go, we all feel like we have something in common. Like there's something that, like we are, we are with our people, that kind of feeling. By virtue of recognizing ourselves as being addressed by, say, additional texts about Queer Eye. Yes. Like Berlant and Warner actually collaborated and so Berlant is, you know, engaging and building on some of Warner's work here when they conceive of what they call intimate publics. And, and intimate publics are a kind of discourse public. Mm -hmm. So they, they operate in the same way. Intimate publics in particular come together via mass media that represent what Berlant calls a, quote, broadly common historical experience, end mm -hmm. quote that consumers can identify with, whether or not they share the actual details of that experience. Hmm. So the idea of an intimate public is that it represents something that feels emotionally true mm -hmm. to the people who identify with it, mm -hmm. whether or not it's literally representing something that's happening to you. Can you give me an example? Yeah, absolutely. Like, think about the intimate publics that emerged around the Twilight books, that despite the fact that those are stories that are operating in a fantasy genre, mm -hmm. a big part of the appeal is that they, for readers of romance, YA romance, supernatural romance, the intensity of the emotions feels emotionally true and resonant, hmm. whether or not it has anything to do with any experiences they've ever had. Gotcha. And so the public that organizes around something like Twilight mm -hmm. is a public that is characterized by a sort of intimate emotional resonance mm -hmm. with what is happening in those texts. So like Team Edward, Team Jacob is like, it's not a joke. Like when people say that they're on Team Edward or Team Jacob, they are like emotionally invested in a couple that does not exist. Yeah. And they're emotionally invested in the kinds of romantic and intimate relationships represented by those couple formations. Gotcha. So Berlant writes that an intimate public operates, quote, when a market opens up to a block of consumers claiming to circulate texts and things that express those people's particular core interests and desires and flourishes as a porous, effective scene of identification among strangers that promises a certain experience of belonging and provides a complex of consolation, confirmation, 
discipline, and discussion about how to live as an X, end quote. So Berlant uses X here because there are many intimate publics that form around many different kinds of identities. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the example that I often go to is, is romance novels mm-hmm. and that the the intimate public generated around romance novels is identifying with the experience of how to be a woman mm-hmm. and particularly sort of taking comfort in the way that particular intimate desires are simultaneously represented and disciplined Mm. by these texts. Mm. So they sort of simultaneously tell you what you can expect. Mm -hmm. You know, they offer you a fantasy that you might desire, but they also frame for you what is an allowable desire. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So what's really key about how Berlant is thinking about intimate publics is that they are different from, say, sort of like politically radical publics. They are often, Berlant calls them juxtapolitical, by which they mean that they're like, they're certainly about politics, but they're not explicitly political because they are so fixated on the sort of emotional level. Mm-hmm. It's like it's about how we feel and what we want. Mm-hmm. And they write, and I quote, the intimate publics are a case study in what happens when a capitalist culture effectively markets conventionality as the source and solution to the problem of living in worlds that are economically, legally, and normatively not on the side of almost anyone's survival, let alone flourishing, end quote. Hot damn. So... That, for me, is like a really effective explanation of why, despite like really significant progress in women's rights, romance only becomes more and more popular Mm. because it offers an emotional solution. Again, it's not about readers then like going out and trying to live romance novels. No, no. It offers an emotional solution in which conventionality, i.e. heterosexual reproductive romance, Mm -hmm. is marketed as a solution to the problem of how fucking awful it is to be a woman in the world Mm -hmm. that ultimately is like the solution is going to be the exact conventionality that was served to you in the first place. But it's going to be framed for you as a protection like a site of protection from the impossibility of thriving under the patriarchy. Whew. Okay, well, we're going to have an episode about romance novels, that's for Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. So that's concept one, that's concept intimate one. publics. <laughs> okay, all right. And so how about concept two? Concept two luckily emerges directly out of concept one. Mm. It's basically Berlant taking up this idea of really wanting the exact thing that is standing in the way of your flourishing mm-hmm. and then writing a whole book about it. I know I know that they're not talking about gluten, but I just I got to say but that they're like, not not talking about not, gluten. They're not talking about gluten. They are talking about food. They explicitly reference food <laughs> as an example. So, the concept is cruel optimism, mm-hmm. which is in fact the name of their 2011 book. Mm-hmm. And it It is sort of an extension of this thinking about, like, how we get attached to objects that offer 
as a solution to a problem more of that same problem. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you, Marcel, to read for us the opening paragraph of Cruel Optimism. Why, thank you. What an honor. Quote, a relation of cruel optimism exists when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your flourishing. It might involve food or a kind of love. It might be a fantasy of the good life or a political project. It might rest on something simpler, too, like a new habit that promises to induce in you an improved way of being. These kinds of optimistic relation are not inherently cruel. They become cruel only when the object that draws your attachment actively impedes the aim that brought you to it initially. End quote. So Berlant gives us some examples of like, what are some of the, the fantasies that we might be attached to that are not possible that our attachment to is is gonna be is gonna be cruel. Mm. <laughs> so they say that those include quote upward mobility, mm-hmm. job security, <laughs> political and social equality, and lively, durable intimacy. Oh boy. As well as meritocracy, the sense that liberal capitalist society will reliably provide opportunities for individuals to carve out relations of reciprocity that seem fair and that foster life as a project of adding up to something and constructing cushions for enjoyment. Oh my God. End quote. What a bummer. <laughs> so they're basically describing here yeah. the American dream. Yeah. 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 And how the inexhaustible effort of scrambling for the American dream is precisely the thing that holds one back from just living a joyful life. Yeah, that that the attachment to the sort of optimistic idea of upward mobility, mm-hmm. meritocracy, carving out a meaningful life within capitalism, our ongoing attachment to that idea mm-hmm. is actively standing in the way of our collective thriving. My golly. So... Cruel optimism might include, say, like, you know, attachment to certain narratives and outward signifiers of upward mobility or capitalist success as a comfort in Mm -hmm. the midst of crisis. Hmm. So, like, maybe life is hard and I'm in a constant state of crisis or I'm, I'm depressed because the world is horrifying, but I am able to, like, get this really nice meal for myself or, like, get myself a treat or, like get a nicer piece of home furnishing or refresh my wardrobe for the new season Mm -hmm. or right that I can sort of surround myself with these trappings of success and pleasure that comfort me in the face of a constant state of crisis. Right. Despite the fact that it is capitalism itself and it's emptying out of social relations beyond the market that has spurred these crises in the first place. Right, right. So like Berlant isn't saying the reason young people can't afford to buy a home is because (laughs) they go to Starbucks and eat avocado toast. Uh, No. Berlant is saying that the idea of home ownership as like a, a, a marker of success and prosperity is itself an illusion. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way, right? Like the fantasy of home ownership as a sign of a particular kind of success stands in for what we actually need, which is housing security. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, what do we actually need as a society? We need people to have a safe place to live. Right. But because 
capitalism has turned housing into something you earn mm. rather than something that we all have an inherent right to, mm-hmm. we become fixated on a fantasy of earning housing security via a particular kind of success or hard work. Right. So what we are attached to isn't the idea of like, I would like to live somewhere where I can't be unexpectedly evicted. Mm-hmm. I would like to live somewhere where I like don't have to pay so much in rent that I can't afford groceries. I would like to live somewhere that is like safe and my kids are okay and it's hygienic. It's basically like I would like to have a human right and the market is like earn it. Have you considered money though? <laughs> have you considered money in lieu of rights? And cruel optimism is us basically saying, yeah, I'll get attached to the idea of money. Even though you know, success in the logic of capitalism only builds more momentum behind capitalism and thus contributes to a world in which we are not collectively thriving. Mm-hmm. You know, a fixation on like, well, I just need to achieve this thing as opposed to how about we collectively advocate for housing justice, right? And it's that sense that like I suspect somebody is having right now where they're like, how the fuck do you expect me to be advocating for housing justice? I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. Is part of the affective relationship of cruel optimism. Gotcha. That it's like, we're all exhausted and we've been functionally in many ways isolated from our communities. Mm-hmm. Again, for isolated from like real, rich, nourishing communal connection mm-hmm. as a function of late capitalism. And so... Instead, you know, like the prospect of like do a thing for your community for many people is like, I am too exhausted. And that is by design. Yeah. Yeah. But I could get these new sheet sets. Exactly. 100% cotton. (laughs) So Oh my God. Speaking of comforting yourself with sheet sets, Mm -hmm. I think it's time to get back to Queer Eye. Great idea. Okay, Hannah. Time to get on your soapbox. All right. The 2018 reboot of Queer Eye deploys the genre of the reality show makeover to create space for new forms of intimate masculinities that are refracted through the neoliberal logics of self-care as conspicuous consumption, thus allowing viewers to participate in a collective fantasy whereby the very systems that are causing ever-deepening political rifts can also offer the cures for those rifts. In this essay, I will... Okay, Hannah, though, let's start. Let's talk about Queer Eye, though, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Please, please. I don't disagree that we've got beautiful displays of tender masculinity mm-hmm. happening throughout the show. Mm-hmm. I think that it is a really effective intimate public Mm -hmm. in the sense that it creates this space of emotional truth in which even if the lives of the heroes aren't exact representations of things that have happened in my life, Mm -hmm. they feel emotionally true in a way that resonates really profoundly with me and makes me feel seen. It's so difficult To talk about something that feels so good 
and mm. at the same time is also so very bad. Ooh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've now, now we're in the space of materialist critique. Yeah, that's how you know you're doing it. We kind of touched on this in the why this, why now section because of all of the ways that queerness has been made legible to a straight audience has has like paved the way for this show that absolutely would have been radical and probably even unthinkable unthinkable, unthinkable 10 years ago unsafe to make in some places even yeah. honestly even today i mean it feels radical to watch jonathan van ness like wear high heels and a dress and talk to a pretty conservative white man about gender expression. Like, that feels radical because it is radical. Yeah. And yet, this is what I find so difficult. I want Jonathan Van Ness's gender expression to be not radical. Do you know what I mean? I want it not to be their job to travel around the country convincing people that they deserve human rights. Yes, yes, yes. And I know, like we were talking about with respect to like door knocking, that it is effective. One-on-one engagement and communication is effective. Mm -hmm. The show as a cultural text, though is commodifying the acceptance of gender fluidity. Yeah. And on the one hand, like we said, we want we want gender fluidity to be the norm or at least to be so unradical that like it doesn't endanger the person whose gender expression is non-normative. And yet, I don't <sighs> Do we have to do it through <laughs> capitalism is what I'm saying. I mean, like we kind of do because it's what we have available to us. I don't think, I mean, I know that Berlantis is not saying everybody stop taking comfort in mass market culture. Yeah. Like that's not, yeah. they are, they are trying to understand how it works. I got to see them speak one time in 2020 mm -hmm. um, via like a Zoom, a Zoom lecture. And in it, they were talking about, about intimate publics and they were like, you know, the thing about an intimate public is that it might not be sufficiently political in and of itself, mm -hmm. but it is an opportunity for people to show up for each other. And that can be a starting point for something. Mm -hmm. So they're never saying like, oh, sorry, you engage with this via capitalism and thus it is bad from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. They're mm -hmm. saying like, we've got to think about the way that market logics frame our effective attachments. The other thing that really stuck with me from that talk is they were like, you know, one of the the whole ideas of, of cruel optimism is that it's our attachment to objects that ultimately sort of sours that, like, you know, that is the, the source of the cruelty. It's how mm. we become attached to things. And they were like, of course, you know, as scholars, our favorite thing to do is to take our objects apart. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that is kind of like a really interesting characteristic of like what we do as scholars and you know as feminist killjoys is that we're constantly taking our objects of attachment and being like okay but how is this actually working but why <laughs> but why but why and but what you know and i keep coming back to this like yeah absolutely queer eye is giving us 
these models of gentle and non-toxic masculinity. They are giving us representations of friendship between men that are intimate and playful Mm -hmm. without being you know, refracted through the sort of acceptable set of relationships men are allowed to have. They let us see the possibility of political change happening in real time via conversation, via the building of intimacy. Mm-hmm. I am always so moved in episodes with straight men who at the beginning will not allow the Fab Five to touch them and by the end are hugging them. Oh, wow. And that idea that like there is a subset of our shared culture and community who don't believe that they are allowed to receive comforting, intimate, physical touch outside of a very narrow set of predominantly sexual relationships. That's right. Like, that is actually really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And, and it is really beautiful to watch people discover that they're allowed to be hugged and that that's okay and that they won't, like, you know, catch gay yeah. from it. And... It's a makeover show. It is about buying people things until their lives are better. Yeah. Like, I want somebody to show me the fucking budget of an episode of this show where they come in and they're like, you know, in order to improve your relationship, you need to not be still sleeping in the bed that you slept in with your ex-wife. Mm-hmm. You really need to get a new bed. And that's framed as like an emotional revelation. And they never mention the fact that probably they didn't get a new bed because beds are expensive and these people are explicitly working class. Yeah. How the fuck are they getting a new bed? This is reminding me of one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, which is like how they make the decisions for where they take the people shopping for the things, right? So like there's an episode and I can't remember what season it's in, but the hero is a tall black woman who runs her own dog grooming business and and it's like in a she has like a van and it's very successful but she hasn't like become i guess kind of like a brand yet or she's not as successful she needs to take her small business to the next level yes yes exactly voiceover Mm -hmm. so they come in bobby makes over her van tan takes her shopping to old navy And this was the first time that I noticed that they went to Old Navy. I'm not sure if it's the first time they go to Old Navy, but it's the first time that I noticed. And I was like, why do some people get to go shopping at like these high-end retailers, but this woman is going to Old Navy? Okay, well, Tan does explain in the show they have tall sizes and she's very tall. So like, okay, but why Old Navy? What's the sub, what's, what's the, what's the, the lie of living within your means? I think that that started happening in the second season. They started taking people to more quote unquote realistic Mm. places to shop. Mm -hmm. I think that there was some critique in the first season of like, well, yeah, absolutely. People can dress better if somebody walks up to them and is like, I'm going to get you an unlimited wardrobe from a fancy store. Right. But it's like, that's not, you know, if we're trying to actually root this in the lived realities of our heroes, that's absurd. So let's take them to Old Navy. Let's take this, like, you know, working dad who needs to figure out how to, like, clothe himself and his kids and feed them. Let's go to Walmart. Because that's, like, actually where he might shop. So let's just show people that, like, you can go to Walmart and you can buy a vegetable. So here, that's great. 
so that is part of it. Definitely. Is this like, let's show let's show that hashtag you can do it. And I suspect that they are getting sponsored by these businesses. Yes, I think that is like it. it's not their personal bank account. Like it's not the heroes. The heroes are not paying for those clothes. <laughs> no. And Tan is not paying for those clothes. Absolutely not. But it's not just like it's part of the show's budget. It's like it's product placement. Yes. Like Old Navy is paying to be featured in this in this episode. And so we're going to go to Old Navy. So that other like young professionals will see it and be like, I'm tall. I could shop at Old Navy and look professional and do it on a budget. Absolutely. So it's literally selling you the idea of going and shopping at this business in order to improve your life. Yeah. When if we actually take a step back and say like, okay, well, why why was this person like with so many of the heroes? It's like, why are they not dressing well? It's like, how? In this economy? In this literally in this economy, (laughs) like minimum wage in the U.S. does not pay you enough to buy clothes. No. And so this is the sort of fascinating thing about the operation of the intimate public is Mm -hmm. that it is really emotionally resonant. Mm -hmm. And by really, I mean both very and real as in like evoke something that is true about how we feel. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it is a manipulative show in the same way that like other conventions of reality tv are Mm -hmm. in the sense that i think we are seeing moments of representations of human connection Mm -hmm. that at least feel and this is the really the important thing is how they make us feel that feel true right So that's, you know, an intimate public, right? It's creating this sort of site via a mass market text. It's creating a site of shared emotional intimacy through offering something that promises to solve an emotional problem that we are having. Mm -hmm. And remember, intimate publics also market conventionality as the solution to the very problems that we are facing. And so what are the solutions that are offered in Queer Eye? They are spa retreats, new wardrobes, <laughs> um, home makeovers, nicer food. My one like consistent complaint is like a, a handful of sessions of therapy, not, <laughs> not described as therapy. <laughs> and you get... Three filmed sessions with a former social worker. So, like, we're not going to call it therapy and we're going to do it while rock climbing (laughs) so that nobody thinks it's therapy. But, like, why are these people not getting therapy? Well, one, stigma, of course. Two, do you know how much therapists charge in this economy? Yeah, like... The logics of the show itself means that they can in no way tackle any of the structural issues that are actually underpinning the problems that we are seeing. Mm -hmm. Because this is not a show that is about, like, legislation or policy or, like, you know, that are about the things that we actually need to change so that people have, like, 
housing security and are paid a living wage and stuff. So that they have time to cook, let alone the like a handful of recipes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, that final moment, like what what really sticks with me when I think about a show like Queer Eye is that final moment, which is always organized around community. So the final reveal is always some kind of community event. It's having your family over for dinner. It's launching your new business. It's mm-hmm. got like it's something that is about bringing a bunch of people together and then showing the way in which that relationship now has the capacity to be healed or improved or strengthened. And that possibility of community and connection is always being framed for us via the makeover transformation, Mm. which is always a material transformation, Mm -hmm. right? And so what we are offered is a scene of renewed community connection that is made possible through conspicuous consumption. Mm. Hmm. If a show as overtly dedicated to helping people live the life that they deserve can't do that without reproducing the same circumstances or normalizing and giving into the same circumstances that create those difficulties or those experiences of marginalization in the first place. If a show like Queer Eye can't do that without reproducing those problems, how, how, how do we, how are we going to, how are we going to do it? I think... One of the really key things here is not to mistake mass culture or popular culture for political solution. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's a really important distinction. And it's tr- it's a tricky one to make. I mean, this is why Berlant has written like a series of incredibly complex texts about popular culture, because it's vital. Like popular culture is so important to us collectively mm-hmm. in the way we think things through. And it's not unrelated to political change. No, no. But it is not synonymous with political change. Right. Like, think about the difference between the the shift of how JVN, you know, like, embraces, lives, represents their gender on the show versus what's actually happening in terms of legislation for trans people in the U.S. right now. Yeah, definitely. Right. Pop culture matters. It does work. But the work that it does is not the work of changing the actual material conditions that make life unlivable for some people. And understanding the relationship between pop culture and actual politics Mm -hmm. and understanding with more nuance how they are and are not related It's kind of the project of this whole show when you think about it. I dare say, you know? Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. Here are some other things you can do at ohwitchplease.ca. You can sign up for our amazing newsletter. You can read our transcripts. You can check out our cool merch. You can find reading lists for our episodes. And 
you can learn more about why maybe you want to support us on Patreon. If you have questions, comments, concerns, especially praise, come hang out with us at Oh Witch Please on Instagram or Twitter or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oh Witch Please. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please Productions team, including our digital content maestro, Gabby, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, our sound engineer, Eric Magnus, and of course, our effortlessly patient executive producer, Hannah Rehack, aka Coach. Is it effortless? I mean, she makes it look She makes it look effortless. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out to Abby, Julia, Mie, Elizabeth, and Janine. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. (laughs) Thanks, friends. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then, later, gators. I'm